0: Hello folks, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm your host. Let me introduce you to today's participant and then I'll get to some housekeeping details and we'll get started with the interview. So first, today's participant is Dr. Mark Plotkin and you can check him out all over the place and I'll get to that in one second, but first let me read his bio. Dr. Mark Plotkin is a renowned ethnobotanist who has studied traditional indigenous plant use with elder shaman, traditional healers of Central and South America for much of the past 30 years. As an ethnobotanist, a scientist who studies how and why societies have come to use plants for different purposes, Dr. Plotkin carried out the majority of his research with the Trio Indians of southern Suriname, a small rainforest country in northeastern South America, but has also worked with elder shamans from Mexico to Brazil. Dr. Plotkin has a long history of work with other organizations to promote conservation and awareness of our natural world, having served as Research Associate in Ethnobotanical Conservation at the Botanical Museum of Harvard University, Director of Plant Conservation at the World Wildlife Fund, Vice President of Conservation International, and Research Associate at the Department of Botany at the Smithsonian Institute. Dr. Plotkin is now President and Board Member of the Amazon Conservation Team a nonprofit organization he co-founded with his fellow conservationist and wife, Liliana Madrigal, in 1996, now enjoying over 20 years of successes dedicated to protecting the biological and cultural diversity of the Amazon. The Amazon conservation team has been a member of the United Nations Environmental Program Global 500 Honor Roll since 2002 and was recognized as using best practices using indigenous knowledge by UNESCO, the United Nations Cultural organization. And his breadth of knowledge is, of course, deep. He has been in the rainforest, meeting people, connecting with indigenous folks for many, many years. And he has definitely been a student of the Plants of the Gods. And I found him to be such an incredible teacher. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for the time, Mark. Thank you. I'd like to direct you to his website, of course, at markplotkin.com, M-A-R-K-P-L-O-T-K-I-N. And also check out one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever found, Plants of the Gods, hosted by Mark Plotkin. I'll read a little bit about that. Plants of the Gods, Hallucinogens, Healing, Culture, and Conservation is a new and unique podcast focusing on the hallucinogenic plants and fungi whose impact on the world, culture, and religion and healing potential is only now beginning to be appreciated on a global scale as never before. Unlike other podcasts relating to this issue, <laughs> relating to these issues, Plants of the Gods is hosted by renowned ethnobotanist Dr. Mark Plotkin, a Harvard and Yale trained scientist who has been studying the healing plants and shamans of the Amazon rainforest for almost four decades. An award-winning scientist and best-selling author, Dr. Mark Plotkin is a spellbinding storyteller who will be speaking from personal experience and will be joined by other leaders in the field. Uh, the podcast is totally digestible. I highly recommend it. Go check it out. He's just come out with season two. And I think the most recent episode is on mushrooms, uh, magic mushrooms. And he started off this, uh, this season two with a couple of episodes on hemp and marijuana. But they range. He talks about curare. He talks about ayahuasca. He talks about uh, ergot and LSD. And it is quite good. So check that out when you can. Uh, also, look up the amazonteam.org. This is the Amazon Conservation Team. Tons of information for those who are interested to find it. Uh, other than that, I will look forward to, uh, to presenting this interview very soon. But for now, let me uh, get to some details for the podcast. First and foremost, the podcast is on video and audio. For those of you listening on audio, you can jump on over to YouTube and check out The Sacred Speaks on video now. Uh, and if you if you haven't checked it out, just go over and like it and share it, please. That would be really helpful. And for those of you watching on YouTube, do the same thing over on audio. Again, much appreciated. I have been interacting with a lot of you recently. If you're um, if you're hanging in with the podcast, thank you. The YouTube channel is kind of lighting up right now, and it's really fun to hear your insight and your wisdom and to interact. I mean, after all, this is a a very cool opportunity to create some community of um, of seekers and people who are interested in this kind of material. So. If, if this kind of podcast is something that you're interested in come on and uh, and, and comment and share information and direct us um, to places uh, I, I, if you're if you're watching this check out some of the comments and uh, and look at some of the links that people share uh, this is really very cool uh, to to see the interaction so thank you all for um, for subscribing for for liking it for sharing it and for comments uh, I, I, I do check it out I do comment and I'm grateful the podcast is Uh, You can check out more on that at thesacredspeaks.com, T-H-E-S-A-C-R-E-D-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. And uh, I've got a ton of interviews. This is number 72. Um, And so there's quite a bit of material to mine through. And if you're new, welcome. If you've been around for a while, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Uh, And um, what else? Website? Yes. Oh, the theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations Music. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Also, the podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Lila Scott-Price, and I started many years ago, and we're growing and expanding. And you can check us out at thecenterforhas.com, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. Also, we have a panel discussion that we uh, involve all the clinicians from the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Check that out at Get Centered. And you can just uh, YouTube that. It's on YouTube. It's, uh, it's a monthly panel discussion where we talk about topics that people are bringing into our offices, anxiety, depression, racism, uh, aggression, um, symbolism, and the like. So thanks for being here. Check that out. Thank you very much. And what else? I think that's it for now. So let's leave it there and I'll give you the interview. Thanks for being here. I'll begin by sharing that story that, that brought us together. I was listening to your podcast, uh-huh. which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. And I, I said, <laughs> foolishly, I guess, I need to learn this, but foolishly, I, you started talking about Ergot and it was a great conversation. I sent Brian a message... And I said, Brian, holy shit, do you know this guy, Mark Plotkin? This is incredible. <laughs> and, and then I kept listening, and within five more minutes, you mentioned Brian Murescu. and Brian. of course he said, yeah, man, we know each other. And, uh, and so it's cool how everything comes together. I guess for now, all roads come through or lead to Brian in my life, so I'm, uh, I'm grateful for that.
1: Well, uh, I am too. I had a not dissimilar Experience. We did a storybook map of the life and times of Richard Schultes, my mentor, which included his field notes, his actual specimens from Harvard, a map of his actual itinerary. And because we wanted to honor his experience in Colombia, de la Republica in Bogota, which is like the Smithsonian of Colombia, it's not just a bank. And I'm forever getting people saying, oh, my God, have you seen this incredible storybook map on the life of Schultes? <laughs> like, yeah, I co-wrote it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get but that. The
1: stuff happens in the Internet age.
0: I ordered, uh, just, to, just to promote it, I ordered Plants of the Gods, and, uh, and I was going to take it on my recent camping trip to, uh, to use, but it's just such a heavy book that I, it would have been weighing me down. But my plan is to accumulate more books like this to, uh, to start identifying some of these plants.
1: Well, it's heavy in many senses of, of, of the word. I, I consider it the most influential book I've ever read because that's what got me thinking about plants and fungi as the basis and inspiration for culture, religion, history, art, and you know, Schultes was this very staid, a uh, very formal-looking fellow. But he, to me, was the most uh, the, the greatest trickster in Harvard Square. And I mean that in the positive shamanic sense. That he seemed to be this very conservative establishment figure who is the one that with the Harvard tenure telling everybody, Indians know more than we do. You know, these drugs will expand your mind. And you, you compare them to Timothy Leary, who many people revere and many people don't, and Schultes did it from within the system and I think ultimately had a much more positive impact because he did it through a scientific prism, even though ethnobotanically he was the ultimate wild man in terms of like, okay, you've got ayahuasca, you don't pass it over. <laughs> and so this is a guy who's been portrayed on screen, at least in part, by Sean Connery and medicine men, by, by Harrison Ford and, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and this is a guy who never took off his Harvard tie in the classroom. So I just sort of love that multifaceted trickster aspect who inspired not only a generation of ethnobotanists, but people like uh, 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 William Burroughs, uh, Ginsburg, Ed Wilson, who weren't students and weren't ethnobotanists, they they were just inspired by the personality, there's a better word in Spanish, the personaje that he was, the great and extraordinary character, which is really a towering figure in ethnobotany. And it was Schultz who always said, look, I didn't discover anything, okay, I didn't discover ayahuasca, I didn't discover magic mushrooms, the indigenous peoples taught it to me which is the way it should be, right? I was just listening, I was just learning, I was just taking. I mean, this is a man who by the age of 25 had brought mescaline and uh, magic mushrooms to the, to the world. I mean, that's what, a, what a, 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 a lifelong achievement that was. And then he went and did the first scientific discovery of ayahuasca. So this what is why I? there's so much to learn from his example and the other people that he went on to inspire, like Gordon Lawson, okay? Gordon Lawson never would have gone to Oaxaca without Robert Graves, who was a poet, saying, check out this guy Schulte's, man. This is wild stuff. You're interested in mushrooms? Holy shit, you
0: got to read this stuff. (laughs) What year did that come out, Schulte's first work?
1: He did the stuff on peyote in uh, 1936, I think it came out. And then the mushrooms were just two years later in '38. There were two seminal papers, one in the American Anthropologist and one in the Botanical Museum leaflets. And Schulte is always proud to say, uh, the Botanical Museum leaflets, a, a journal of very limited distribution. <laughs> it was printed on a manual press in the basement of the museum. Wow. So, uh, and then it went on to change the world. You know, like Schulte's discovered, discovered Ololiuki, the hallucinogenic warning glory in Oaxaca. OK, and when Albert Hoffman went and did the chemistry on Oliuki, he found it was incredibly similar to LSD. So maybe if he hadn't synthesized LSD playing with the ergot alkaloids, he would have basically done it with the Oliuki alkaloids. And Schultes, who had this very droll sense of humor, said, yeah, I published this in the Botanical Museum leaflets. and Nobody read that paper for 20 years. And then all of a sudden they couldn't keep morning glory seeds on the shelf in Berkeley, California.
0: Well, I'm assuming that's because in the late '50s, that's when that Wasson article came out, and that kind of brought things more into the populace. Is that totally?
1: Well, yeah. Wasson, the Wasson Life article, which everybody who hasn't read should read, yeah. was essentially 1955, and there's a discussion ongoing in, in the psych in our community, uh, in the Eastern botanical community, about if we're in the psychedelic Renaissance, when did it start? Okay. When did it start? Was was it Schulte's in, in Oklahoma with peyote? Was it Schulte's in Oaxaca with the mushrooms? Was it Wasson in Oaxaca with the mushrooms? Was it Timothy Leary in Harvard Square? You know, was it Brian Moore Rescue's great book? I mean, you know, <laughs> Years we, later. it's obviously all of these things, but what marks yeah. the start? So, I mean, we're living in incredible times. I mean, Michael Pollan's book is on the bestseller list. Totally, Brian's book is being read in divinity schools. You know, how exciting... Uh, that the, the world is coming to realize what guys like us have been realizing for years, if not decades. or shamans, millions of years, some would say. But there's a downside to this. And my pal, Tim Ferriss, pointed that out. Like, well, if all of us white guys want to take peyote, that doesn't really lead much for the guys in, uh, the, in, in Texas and, and Oklahoma, Texas and Mexico, or the native church all the way through the Midwest. So what we should be doing is taking San Pedro, and leaving the peyote to the indigenous peoples for whom it's a sacrament.
0: Well, thats uh, that was the question that came up as you were talking about that, is the concern. There's a shadow side to this becoming... I saw two articles recently this week in People magazine where it was a kind of celebrity figure. I think one of the... Something on Housewife. People people send me this stuff. I'm sure you get sent this stuff all the time. Like, Look at this shit. They're talking about it in People. Right, And right. So two people are talking about these transformative ayahuasca journeys. And... I don't, I don't want to be like some kind of an elitist asshole, but you know, it is like, oof. what are your thoughts? Know.
1: Uh, a, a couple of years ago, there was a headline in the onion, which had a picture of a Kamsa shaman, which is a tribe that taught it to Schultes. And the headline over the picture was ayahuasca shaman dreads another weekend of guiding tech CEOs to spiritual oneness. <laughs> yes,
2: that's right. Yes. <laughs>
1: right. Okay. So you think this is hilarious. This is satire. And there was a goddamn article about a month ago saying Texio took ayahuasca, claims it was transformative experience because (laughs) for the first time it's like he finally understood Bitcoin.
0: (laughs) That's got all the buzz, the buzz in it, all the little terms.
1: It's all in there, but it's like, these are powerful aquas. They're taking a lot of ayahuasca because we work with the ayahuasca tribes, but it's like, I don't know, it's like discovering this favorite cool restaurant and all yeah. of a sudden all these knuckleheads pour in and it's not the same. And I mean, that's that's really kind of pedestrian to compare something so sacred as ayahuasca. But you get the drift of it. And, yeah. and, and these guys are, you know, they go to Esalen and they get in the hot tub and they think they're a shaman.
0: Yeah. Right? yeah. 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 Uh,
1: I, uh, I did the commencement address, oddly enough, at a medical school about 10 years ago. And I cited one of the, the teachers, one of the great shamans of the Ngannou people. And I asked him how long it took him to become a shaman. He says, well, in your years, I'm 92. I started drinking the Remedio when I was five. So he says, you guys study medicine for three years and think you yeah. figured it all out.
0: Child's play. Total, which you're hitting on all the things I, I actually want to get into. But the this this reminds me of that kind of narrative, that that dual narrative in these kind of psychedelic structures where we have the Timothy Leary approach and the Aldous Huxley approach. And there seems right. to be... I, I don't. I kind of default, of course, to Huxley. I really like his, his writing, and I like his measured uh, stance. You know, it, 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 it right. has a certain sacredness to it, as opposed to this. Let's just everybody get high. It, it's just a different attitude.
1: Right. But what what people fail to remember about the Doors of Perception, what do they remember? Jim Morrison. That's their remember about the sure. Doors of Perception. <laughs> um, that Huxley took mescaline. Okay. The, the powder, the pill, whatever, but just the alkaloid. He didn't take the peyote. Okay, he didn't take the San Pedro. So when you have all these uh, psychonauts saying, oh, no, I've got to go there and eat the, the sacred cactus, uh, the peyote. Well, some would say the psychedelic renaissance was launched with Huxley. There's a compelling case to be made for that. And here was a guy taking the alkaloid. He was not taking the cactus. There, there was no shame in there. It was in some stupid house in Westwood in L.A., so that this brings up the whole question of, you know, what's the real experience? Now, I don't expect everybody to be trekking off to the jungle and finding a, a traditional ayahuasca shaman in a, in a very remote tribe. That's just not doable. Um, however, uh, I, I, I totally reject the idea that a, a doctor or a nurse or a guide can give you uh, psilocybin in, in a laboratory and have the same effect as a shaman in all cases. Right. Now, we all, all know people who've taken, who bought ayahuasca off the internet and tried it and had a wonderful healing experience. And we also know people who had a pretty terrible time. Yes. And, and I've had bad trips on ayahuasca, but always under the care of a shaman who could bring me back. So that I, I always try and make the point that you should, you really got to do this under the influence and the under influence of a guy. You know, Leary very famously said, Pollutions are, 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 are really about set and setting. He missed the most important S, which is shaman. And, you know, all of us who've taken mind altering substances uh, on our own, it's a throw of the dice, right? Yes. Uh, I don't worry as much about people taking, smoking too much dope as I do uh, taking too much opium, right? Right? For obvious reasons. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that these are like shamanic scalpels, okay? And a scalpel can cure you and a scalpel can kill you. And why, if somebody says, oh, ayahuasca can cure your depression, why would you run off and take it yourself any more than somebody said, hey, a scalpel can be useful for healing. You wouldn't go out and do surgery, <laughs> right? You need to know somebody who, who knows what to do with this stuff. And and I and when people ask me, uh, well, what do you see uh, as job opportunities? You know, we're in this world of uncharted waters. And I said, well, for your generation in college now, I see two. The greatest opportunity for the future: tattoo removal. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is going to be a booming business. Mm-hmm. Number two is going to be guides. Uh, guides under the influence of these. Uh, fungal and, 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 and botanical mind altering substances, because one of the great things about these things, the, the, these compounds is they can cure you when you're not sick. Yeah. Okay. It's like preventative medicine, which is totally anathema to the way Western medicine typically works. I mean, we're getting more into it in terms of exercise and diet stuff. So also the issue that you can take it once and you can get better in some cases uh, which really is not the kind of thing the pharmaceutical industry thrives on. So I think people that have an interest in this stuff, people that want, feel a call to heal, there's just not enough guys out there. This well, is going
0: it, to boom. It's it's interesting that you're mentioning that the two things. The first thing is that I'm actually going in the opposite direction of tattoos, so I'm not going to support. that. I'm getting more of those things as we go. You know, the second one is, I'm I'm the I'm the consumer. I'm I'm. I've got a PhD in Jungian psychology. I'm a psychotherapist. I've been looking right. to, I've been talking to all these folks in this arena, from Tony Bosses to Bill Richards to, to right. Jeff Kripal to Brian Marescu. I, like, this is the territory. And it, when Tony and right. I were talking about it, it's in particular the way it's coming in is, of course, for palliative care. But I, right. I see, a, I, I just see a lot, you know, with uh, with what I do as a psychotherapist, right I notice that I feel bound uh, often by mm-hmm. certain uh, so of course certain ethical issues because our culture is not set up to have these kinds right. of opportunities and so right. if I make a recommendation for somebody to go out and meet with somebody and do psilocybin I, I don't I don't know where to I don't know where to put them other than you know My you've got to go exactly. down to Peru you know so <laughs> I am certainly one of those people who is a consumer, and mm-hmm. Brian and I have been talking about this, Tony and I have been talking how to become a guide in our mm-hmm. culture that makes sense, right. where I don't need to have to jump over to something else. Um, so uh, you've actually just summarized so much of uh, of what I wanted to talk about in thinking about our conversation today, but I want to back up and kind of start to be surgical about how sure. we get into this. So this actually gets to one of the first questions which is and maybe we should back up even further would you would you give us like a 5 or 10 minute ethnobotany 101 and sure. just help orient us in what that is in the first place for the listener's benefit
1: from the time our species arose and obviously earlier we had to figure out how to survive so the immediate needs are going to be food shelter Uh, water, medicine. Now, three of those come from plants. So what ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between plants and peoples. Now, there's a reductionist view, which says ethnobotany is about uh, scientists picking up their plant press, heading into the jungle and working with tribal medicine. Uh, That's definitely part of it, and perhaps the most romantic and interesting and archetypal image. But uh, I think studying a, a farmer in a cornfield in Iowa is ethnobotany—it's people mm-hmm. and it's plants. But the fuse is lit now. The Amazon is being destroyed faster than ever. Tribal cultures are coming in with into contact with the outside world faster than ever. And unlike in China and India, where they've been writing down their knowledge of medicinal plants for thousands of years, the indigenous peoples of the Amazon don't have a traditional written language. And so the race is on to save the knowledge and the plants because you, you, you can save one without the other, but obviously it, it's not the same. You can do high-throughput screening where you set up a lab and run all the stuff and is it good for diabetes, is it good for cancer, is it good for depression? But isn't it better to look at the table of contents where you're trying to find something in a, in a, in a long and complicated book? And in the indigenous people's wisdom is that table of contents and that index. There's very, very, very few compounds uh, that have come from nature that were found in blind screens. One of them was cyclosporin, which is an immunosuppressant used in organ transplant surgery. That was a blind screen. Taxol, uh, an anti-cancer superstar, was found in the Pacific U in a blind screen. But my buddy, Jim Duke, the late Jim Duke, was talking to the local tribes people. And they said, yeah, of course we use that for medicinal plants. Nobody asked us. So uh, we might've got to it sooner. So the point here is that Nature is the ultimate source of healing, and I don't just mean alkaloids and plants, I'm talking about spiritually and ethically, uh, and clean air and clean water is all tied together, but also that the indigenous peoples have to be considered as a part of it, not only to find this stuff, but to steward this stuff, but it has to be done in a way which benefits them and us, because in the past that was never the case.
0: Well, and, and uh, latched onto that, would you also speak a little bit about what you're doing currently with the Amazon Conservation Foundation, and then we can dive into specifics. Yeah.
1: I'm an ethnobotanist by training, and I and my partner, Liliana Madrigal, a Costa Rican Protected Area Specialist, 25 years ago, set up the Amazon Conservation Team, amazonteam.org, to specifically address what we were calling biocultural conservation. In other words, 25 years ago, 25% of the Amazon was in national parks, Uh, 25% of the Amazon was indigenous lands, but nobody was working with the Indians to help them protect their land, their rainforests, their rivers, and their culture. That is what we set out to do. And at this point, a quarter of a century later, we partner with over 100 tribes, uh, mostly Amazonian, but not solely in in the Amazon. We work with the Kogis, some of the most traditional and spiritual people in, in the world. They live on in Northern Colombia, And one of our key approaches is mapping, ethnographic mapping, where if in, in revolutionary terms, we don't make the maps. We teach our indigenous colleagues how to make the maps. We teach them how to use the GPS. We give them the satellite imagery, but they make the maps. It's the ultimate act of empowerment. It's a perfect marriage of indigenous shamanic wisdom and 21st century technology.
0: Okay, good, That's that's current. Now let's go back in time. So your book I have here um, was in '92, '91. What is it? Um, the that's first my first
1: one. book, Tales for Shaman's Apprentice.
0: Yes, here, and I'll that's it. I'll talk about it, uh, in the intro. Uh, so it is a mix of you know uh, sociology and anthropology and you know like Indiana Jones and like. Jim Morrison, and you know, I, 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 again, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed reading this text. I thought it was so marvelous. I, I was breathing it. You know, I was like, uh, I went camping this past weekend, so I, I was in those spaces with you, and uh, it was pretty magical. So to go back, you were talking about Schulte's earlier, and so you you show up at, at school and you see this. You have an interesting story here though, because you didn't go a typical route of. Of school, by any means. Could you speak to that for a couple of minutes?
1: Yeah, my Jewish mother says, I like college so much, I crammed four years into seven. <laughs> right.
0: My wife wishes I did that. I, I did like 15 years of college. Holy shit.
1: Uh, but I had the great good fortune to stumble into Schultz's classroom. I, I I was working as a, essentially a gopher at the Harvard Museum. It was a college dropout. And I just fell into the spell of this guy who went off to the jungle in 1941. <laughs> And, and, you know, went native for 14 years. I mean, romance, adventure, naked people, uh, yeah. hallucinogens, what's not to like? That's right?
0: great. Yes, yeah, Simon. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So I'm still at it. And,
0: so did, how did you yeah. contain yourself where you were having to do the kind of typical jumping through the hoops of doing all the prerequisite classes and all that? Yet you already had this connection with not only the museum and this massive figure Schultes. How would you deal with that?
1: You know, it was just a question of, of, of perseverance. And Schultes didn't hold the iconic role in culture then that he holds today. I mean, he was a legend on campus. But, you know, it, it wasn't until people kind of looked up and said, wait a minute, inspiring Allen Ginsberg? He's hero <laughs> to Ed Wilson, portrayed on screen by Harrison Ford? Like, this is even more special than we thought. And and, and it, it was just this quiet, unassuming Fellow, you know, it wasn't one of these chess beaters like I have Harvard 10. I remember once I was in a, at a road stop, uh, in a truck stop in Brazil. We were looking for rubber. He found the new species going down this terrible uh, new Amazonian highway, 40 miles an hour. And we stopped to celebrate at this terrible Brazilian truck stop. And he uh, started selling jokes in Portuguese. And the truck driver looks up and goes, hey, you're pretty funny. What's your name? And everybody at the table is like, oh, my God, this this, this low." low Truck drivers. That's the great Harvard professor. What, what his name was? And he said Ricardo. What's yours? <laughs> so that's who he was. Wow. So another time, I was in the Harvard Cooper and in the Harvard bookstore, and he's uh, getting some pictures developed, and the guy couldn't find the, the photos. Remember photos? And uh, he said, uh, "It's just some rainforest pictures." And he goes, "Rainforest pictures? You know, there's a guy here, like this totally famous dude, who went to the jungle for 15 years and took all these hallucinogens and." And and there was this Colombian botanist with us, and she
2: goes, that's him, (laughs) that's him.
0: Indiana. Yes. Yeah. So So, uh, how did it go? Like You started getting into this. I mean, how soon from when you were doing your school was it that you ended up in the Amazon?
1: Well, it it wasn't as straight a path as it may seem. I was working at the museum to, to put myself through night school, take all Schulte's classes. And they're running an expedition to Haiti and they were doing this project studying the up studying the process of evolution by studying all the lizards on all the different islands lizards are a lot easier studying the humans right so they sent me down to Haiti with this group and it was just me and a bunch of graduate students and they're trying to catch these fence lizards with with loops and nooses and traps I'm like shit I grew grow up catching these things boom you know I caught more before lunch than they had caught the whole week before and they said when finally we know what this guy's good for he's an ace lizard catcher so they started sending me all over in search of these you know hard to catch lizards and and that was my ticket to the amazon
0: where'd you grow up
1: new orleans louisiana
0: oh, that's right i recall that yeah. yeah catching lizards all over the place huh yeah
1: i mean it's a, it, it's a subtropical paradise you know if you're interested in 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 if you like the heat, I mean, people say to me, "How do you work in the Amazon?" I mean, you know, it's hot, and there's mosquitoes, and there's political corruption. I'm like, hey, man, I grew up in Louisiana. Yeah, <laughs> you
0: <know>? I'm in <laughs> so, Houston. I'm 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 on the third coast with you. You understand? <laughs> I sure do. So. Uh, okay, so now you said a term earlier, and again, back to 101. You said alkaloid, and I'm I I, I right. want to interweave some of these terms in through our conversation. Sure. Would you speak to some of the chemical aspects of what you do?
1: Alkaloids are a class of chemicals that have a similar structure, which contains nitrogen. They are very uh, biodynamic in the human body, but they cause some effects. Caffeine is an alkaloid. Uh, strychnine is an alkaloid. Uh, ayahuasca is based on alkaloids. And the reason they're so well known in study, even though there's a lot more to learn, is they persist. When we went back and looked at the uh, ayahuasca that Spruce Sh- that collected in the Amazon over 100 years ago, they were still active. When we looked at the curare uh, collections of Waterton from British Guiana over 150 years ago, they were still toxic. Oh. So this is why uh, alkaloids are a mainstay of their medicine and a mainstay of our medicine because we're able to collect them. And there's things in the Amazon which are much more ephemeral. For example, I could take you into the jungle and slash the bark of a croton tree with my machete, and the sap would come out red, and then it would turn orange, and then it would turn yellow, and then it would turn white. You know, there's some wild ass chemistry going on there. Okay. So, a group called Naple Pharmaceuticals has developed a new drug for AIDS related diarrhea based on this compound because the indigenous peoples in the Western Amazon uh, are using this for diarrhea and, and
0: other problems. But there's so much of what you talk about. So, here's the, the, when we're staying on chemicals, of course, I want to talk about Western medicine and set up a bit of a of a discussion between Western medicine and more indigenous mm-hmm. medicines. And mm-hmm. it, it, it seems to me like what, what Westerners tend to do is we want to go down to the forests and extract and bring things back. So we're right. miners, right? We mine the territory and bring it back over here. It, right. it, it seems like everything would, would be better, right, if we could use that term, if we would learn from the relationship that the indigenous folks have with nature plants and I mean, although that cat's probably out of the bag. So I'm sure that's ultimately incredibly frustrating for you to be over here, over there and the culture shock that, um, that comes up as a result.
1: I think part of the challenges of this type of work when you're working with other cultures, whether it's indigenous peoples in the Amazon or wine peasants in France is to be able to go back and forth and be at home in both. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I wish that everybody who had a problem or one experience that could go to the Amazon and take uh, ayahuasca in a completely traditional setting, but the demand's too great. Right. You know, you look at Guatla, the center of the, of the mushroom cults, and you see all these gringos walking around with plants, the gods go, now I want to try this, now I want to try this, now I want to try this. That's not exactly honoring the sacred, but you have to understand and respect their need for knowledge or healing, because Western medicine or Western spirituality Yep. is not meeting their needs. There was a tweet the other day by a, a, a veteran who said, how do we get people back in the church? And, and I said, uh, entheogens, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> which, yes.
1: Which fits in with Brian's thesis. And there was a great quote from a guy, an anthropologist who worked with the Native American church. And he said, uh, the Indian goes into his teepee, no, the white man goes into his church and talks about Jesus. The Indian goes into his teepee, takes peyote and talks to Jesus.
0: Yeah, why don't okay. we have religious so, experience?
1: Right, and of course, the, the point of Brian's wonderful book, The Immortality Key, is we've lost that, that that was in Christianity, right? And and that when you're not taking ergot with the little wafer, um, you're, you're, you're not seeing the blood on the <laughs> line, okay? and and But, you know, I don't want to pick on Christianity here. Since Brian's book came out, they found uh, marijuana, uh, on an altar uh, near Jerusalem, so that the the, the Jews were using these mind altering substances as well. Now, when you find a marijuana on one altar in, in, in Israel, uh, or when you find ergot in one chalice in in Catalonia, doesn't mean that you know at the Last Supper right. that the Holy Grail was full of ergot. But I, I you know I just reviewed Brian's book and I pointed out if this is true, and the only way to prove this is To search for the holy grail, which is the holy grail, <laughs> right?
0: Carl Ruck has course, a different theory. Karl Ruck's talking about all the mushrooms that were in all those, uh, you know, all, all you know, he's got Christ or Christ like figures doing communion with mushrooms, and the fly agaric is the uh, right.
1: Well, you know, people said Ruck's thesis would never be tested, and then Brian came up with the chalice, <laughs>
0: it's radical, right.
1: So so Ruck is, is living the good life, and he that, uh, all these people who dismissed him, and he proved to be an ethnobotanical Cassandra.
0: He's humble about it, too. He's got a nice kind of uh, humility when I was really propping him up and saying, man, you, you know, you're right. And he's like, eh, you know, it's really nice to see.
1: Well, he's had a long time to digest it. I only met him once at the inauguration of the Watson Library at Harvard. And, you know, he, he struck me as a, as a brilliant guy and time has proven him right. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to live long enough to see that, that when everybody said you were full of shit, they were wrong and you were right. <laughs>
0: That's right. I, I Yeah, I spoke with him post-heart surgery, and he was just mm-hmm. as... Uh, I mean, he sent me five PDFs of books he's written in the last few years. I mean, the guy's mm-hmm. just a literary fountain, just still coming out with all this stuff. So, um, okay, well, let's back up. Can we Can we do that? Can we look at... I love that you brought spirituality into it because I definitely want to get to that. I'm very interested mm-hmm. in the religious and spiritual nature of the indigenous communities in South America. But can, can we explore Western medicine and Western spirituality and then compare that or look at it in relationship to the indigenous folks?
1: Sure. I, I think that we have lost a spiritual aspect, uh, you could say it's because we don't, take mind-altering substances in church or synagogue or the mosque, and remember that all religions uh, have some sort of mythological aspects. Moses talking to the burning bush or Muhammad ascending to the heavens on a magic steed. And ethnobotanists would say, yeah, I know it, where, where that happened, how it happened, what they what they took to make it happen. Yes. Uh, some would consider that a sacrilege. And so I, I don't want to make it seem too dismissive, like either you agree that uh, Muhammad took... Uh, ayahuasca, or I don't, I don't want to hear from you, uh, people do have spiritual experiences with no drugs. And, and and sometimes it's fasting and sometimes going off in the desert. Sometimes it's it's dancing or trancing or whatever. So the idea that if you don't do uh, hallucinogens, you can't get to this special place, but it's a lot quicker. Okay. So over the course of time and over the course of, of, of culture, hundreds of thousands of years, all kind of crazy stuff might have happened that we can't explain through the prism of... Uh, Western religion or or science. But I remember particularly in conversation with Schultes, where he was teaching a class called Plants of the Bibles, and he talked about the origin story of this one tribe in the Colombian Amazon, that humanity originated in the Milky Way, and they came down in the sacred canoe which contained the four most important plants, coca, ayahuasca, uh, cassava, and something else. And after class, this woman came up and said, Hey, this stuff is just such gibberish, you know, I mean, where do they come up with this nonsense? And he said, nonsense, huh? He said, you mean like a snake chasing a naked man and woman to a garden <laughs> with an apple in his mouth?
0: <laughs> That's what. Ed, it's funny, I just presented on this, uh, Ruck, in his book, The World of Classical Myth, the first two uh, out of 14 is number one, uh, it's something like every culture has a myth, and they call it reality. Uh, and other cultures' myths they call false or not true. You know, so it's always that juxtaposition between we do have that kind of spontaneous nature to have a certain mythology, but then we look at others and say, oh, not that. You know, <laughs> this one's right.
1: It, 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 I, I think this sort of tribalism is in our DNA, and this accounts for racism.
0: Yeah. That, you know,
1: it's just the otherness, the other tribe, what they know is stupid, what they know is wrong. I work a lot with the trios in Suriname, and I started working with the trios, the Southwestern trios, uh, which is where most of the book is set. And then when I went to the northeastern trios and the same tribe, different sub tribe, different villages, and they're like, man, those guys are thieves. They're going to steal you blind. They didn't even talk trio right. I mean, what a bunch of losers and crooks. And I got over there. They were just as nice as the other people. Then I went to work with the trios across the border in Brazil. And they're like, dude, you got to be careful with those trios, man. They're just a bunch of bumps. And this said to me that, you know, we're, we're just kind of born and bred to be distrustful other religions, other people, other colors, other belief systems, and 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 most of this is nonsense. You know, well,
0: most of this is nonsense. It's it's interesting to me, and this is probably the romantic side. I know it is of me that that says, you know, when these substances, in particular, the entheogenic substances, they get to use kind of Westernized language, the egos out the door, right? And and so we that thing, that differentiating thing inside of us, that organ of orientation that says, you know, you and me, it goes away. So you would think on some level there would be this Kumbaya harmony. But in fact, through your book, there's a lot of, there is a lot of war. There there were a lot of really shady things. And in particular, the competition amongst shaman, where they're fucking with each other. And they are you know, totally. like, totally. what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was working
1: with a, a, a shaman in Oaxaca, and the, the great shamans of the Mazatecs are basically women. Uh, there's only one other group that I know that, that to be true in, in the world, which is the Shipibo, and so the Peruvian Amazon. Uh-huh. And I, I said to this woman, I said, look, I'm really interested in diabetes. I'm Jewish, of diabetes in my family, my religion. Uh, do you know anything for diabetes? And she said, sure. And I said, would you be willing to, to share with me? And she said, sure, but on one condition, one condition. Said, sure, what's that? She said, don't tell that shaman next door. She'll steal my secrets. <laughs> like intellectual property rights, totally. compensation. You know, it's like, no, you know, just don't, don't, don't share it with that, the tone of her, her, her thing. So it's just, it's just the human condition, you know, well, to, 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 to be a bit suspicious, to look down on other people, to not want to share with other people. And at the same time, you know, there's this empathetic impulse in most of us. So, you know, it's like Walt Whitman. I contain multitudes, man. That's just totally embodies that.
0: Well, and this is what, uh, my, my friend Jeff krepel has talked about publicly but we've also talked about it um, in different spaces that the th- there's a certain romantic moral morality that people project onto these substances as if you take these things and then you're a moral person and it's just not that way at all
1: I wish it was and
0: yeah. the idea
1: that everybody in the world should drink ayahuasca I have no problem with. But uh, I read a, a really troubling essay called Lucy in the Sky with Nazis. Yep. That, that, that some of these far right people are totally into this and it's part of their cult. Right. And, and, you know, like I said, it's like the scalpel can be used for good, can be used for evil. So this idea that, you know, we're all going to take these drugs and go to Haight-Ashbury and take our clothes off and dance in a circle. It's a little simplistic. <laughs> that's right.
0: Well, again, that's the romantic kind of freedom from whatever enslaves us. And of course, the, the, I'm projecting here, but the Nazi has one idea of what is enslaving, and the hippie on Haight-Ashbury has another idea. True. We're so going to get different issues there.
1: True. But uh, I'd I, I like to emphasize, and I do this in my podcast, Plants of the Gods, and I try and do it in every episode, which is that uh, these are plants that can heal, and these are plants that can hurt. Yeah. Okay. I, I have people say to me, well, it's a natural substance, so it's got to be better than a synthetic substance. Really, like strychnine? Yeah. You know, this idea that, well, what could go wrong? I, the, the thing says take 3.5 grams of, of the mushrooms. I'm a tough guy, I want to take five. <laughs> doesn't always have a happy ending, right?
0: No. Yeah, except I do like the... If, if you are in a community that is mindful of something like integration... Right. And, and But we do this in psychotherapy. I mean, somebody has a trauma... And it's how you integrate or work through the trauma, which is why a guy like Bill Richards would say there's no such thing as a bad trip when you are able to explore it in a safe container, which I don't know. I, I guess that's our modern day interpretation, or rather our modern day uh, healing ritual that we have. You go to the psychotherapeutic container, and there hopefully you can process through whatever came up. It's a hell of a lot different than going to a shaman, I imagine.
1: Right. But let me tell you what the shamans have told me about uh, what afflicts us. They, one of the guys said to me, you know what kills white people? And I said, no, what? He says, worrying about worry. Yeah. Okay. Stress. What's the cure for stress? I mean, uh, you know, I'm not a physician. I'm not a f- psychotherapist, but I haven't run across a cure for, for stress in Western medicine. And he, said, he explained to me, he said, look, he said, this is what trauma is when you're seven years old and you fall down and you hurt your knee, uh, it gets better and it stops hurting. When you're 47 years old, you fall down and hurt your knee, uh, it gets better, but it doesn't stop hold hurting because your mind is holding on to it to punish you for the stress in your life or for something bad you did, whatever, whatever, whatever. And with these, uh, entheogenic substances, I can let you let go of that. I can pull it out of you and throw it away because you can't do it yourself. And, and that's what a lot of people don't get.
0: Okay, Zen, so two, two threads here, because you've got, you know, first person, the shaman is saying, I can help you do that. Then you right. hear a lot of people talking about things like, well, the medicine, right? M- grandmother ayahuasca is helping this. Would you speak right. a little bit about both? like what's the, what's the active participative aspect of the shaman versus the inherent medicinal value of something like what they say, grandmother ayahuasca?
1: Well, my buddy Glenn Shepard, who's one of the greatest ethnobotanists of all time, has pointed out that in Western medicine, we tend to dismiss the placebo, yeah. uh, whereas shamans enhance the placebo. Interesting. And that you, uh, it, it, if, if it works, why not use it? I mean, look, if I have appendicitis, I don't want somebody trying the placebo effect on me, right? I don't want a surgeon. Right. But for many of these problems, like stress related insomnia, acid reflux, Uh, If the placebo works, I prefer that to to surgery. And so these are masters of the placebo effect, which should be seen as medicine versus placebo because they're using both. Okay. And and you think you're going to get better and you see the ritual and you hear the sounds and you hear the music and and maybe you dance with them. And it is a, a curative ritual versus going to see my doc who's harried, who's late, who comes in, says, what's the problem? writes down a script, gives it to me, and leaves.
0: Okay, minutes,
1: I'm not minutes. getting much TLC there. Right. Uh, and, and, and so when you're spending all night with a shaman who prays over you, who does energy work, laying on a hand, limpieza, whatever, 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 massage, blow smoke on your face, uh, you're getting a lot more TLC than the typical seven-minute in a, in a Western clinic. So uh, the performative aspects of that are part of the healing process, and then they give you the medicine. Okay. It's like the best of both worlds. So uh, I've had people say, well, how can they cure you doing all this mumbo jumbo? Like, well, I don't know, but sometimes it works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also, I, I think it's a mistake to be dismissive of the placebo effect in our own culture. Totally. Okay. If you give me a prescription, I go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist is wearing a white coat. Why is the pharmacist wearing a white coat? Pharmacists don't do jack shit. They take pills from one bottle and they put it in another. So the old days where they were mixing powders and potions and stuff, but you go there and you see the pharmacist in a clean white coat, you think medicine, healing, I'm mm-hmm. getting better. Imagine if you went to the pharmacy to get your script filled and the, 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 the pharmacist had, you know, dirty dreadlocks and a, and a dirty mm-hmm. Grateful Dead t-shirt and dirty toenails, right? Medicine would be the same. You'd go running out of there. So that more placebo, the better, but we shouldn't be using a placebo just like we shouldn't be using shamanic medicine when what you need is Western invasive, high-tech surgery. Yes. The problem is people, you know, to a carpenter, the, the hammer is his only tool. So if you go to a, a physician, I mean, I'll give you a, a personal example. Has nothing with shamanism. I injured my foot and a, a friend of mine saw me limping and said, I know the Washington Redskins doc he does this stuff all day. Go see him. Nobody can get to see him, but he's my pal, and I'll get you right in there. And I go in there, and he's like, "Okay, well, schedule surgery on on Tuesday." I'm like, "Well, what do you mean?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna operate." I'm like, "Well, uh, aren't there any alternatives?" He said, "I'm a surgeon. This is what I do." I said, "I want a second opinion." And a couple of days later, I was drinking with a friend of mine who was a trainer, and he said, "Take off your take off your shoe," which I did, and he said, "You're plantar fasciitis." He says, just let me tape it. You'll be fine. I mean, in severe cases, more, more uh, right. in-depth type of stuff is done. But he taped and I got better. Now, who would you rather be treated by? Who would you rather be cured by?
0: Right? If, if you're a hammer, right, everything's a nail.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So that <clears throat> uh, I, the medical office of the future, if we get this right, is going to have the shaman and the doctor, the masseuse, the, the, the music therapist, the pet therapist, the psychotherapist. Because no one person can do all of it.
0: Well, that's, that's and, our practice. I, I'm running that practice. My wife and okay, I Okay. <laughs> you're ahead of the game. But
1: yeah. uh, the, the problem is these guys don't know anything about right. other systems of medicine. I've never had a physician say, you really need to see an diabetic physician for this. Okay. Or they know anything about plants. It's changing because of the demand and the realization that, that a lot of this stuff works. But we're not where we need to be
0: it feels like we're having a dinner conversation with my wife she's an acupuncturist and so we're consistently talking about or she is you know right in this lane you know we're we're consistently looking at how nature heals and how most of the most of our issues is that we have a lifestyle that gets in the way of our natural healing and we also right. aren't connected with places that look like the background you got right now <laughs> and that uh-huh. that's a i mean in Japan they're like prescribing forest walking or you know it's like just get That's into great. some trees, you know, like get yeah. away from all this shit. Yeah, I got S- it. So, um, yeah. Go on.
1: No, there's a great cartoon I stumbled across recently, which has a bunch of anthropologists coming into an Amazonian village and they have a box full of uh, iPads and cell phones saying, we're here to give you technology. We'll be back in a month with antidepressants. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. God. <laughs> yes, it's that way. It. You know, we I say this a lot, and I probably say it a lot on the podcast, is that you know, I like my windows and my light bulbs, but there's a cost. And mm-hmm. there's it does what I think this conversation about Western medicine and spirituality is that there's a separating or differentiating factor. And what I heard throughout your book was, what was that really good? Oh, yeah. It was the myth that you presented around curare mm-hmm. with the monkeys. Would you share that? Yeah.
1: Well, when I asked the trios where they got curare, which is arrow poison, which has become important in Western medicine as a surgical uh, anesthetic, they said that um, it it was given to them by a harpy eagle, which is the most powerful raptor in the forest and sometimes a symbol of the shaman. And the harpy eagle said, uh, you know, be careful how you use this, it's a poison and don't overuse it. And this guy was out hunting And he was hunting howler monkeys, and there was one howler monkey left, which said, don't shoot me, you have enough uh, already. And he shot the howler monkey, and she fell down dead and turned into his wife. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So that it was, you know, I mean, to us, it sounds like, oh, you know, silly myth and stuff like that. But what it really was is social control about why they shouldn't hunt. And many of the time I've had people tell me stuff, which was essentially an allegory. Yep. Uh, I, I was working with a film crew, and the shaman was treating this guy. And the, the cameraman said, what's what's he treating the patient for? And and the shaman said, uh, the patient's body has been invited in, 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 in invaded by this tiny invisible spirit ant. And I have to treat the patient to kill that tiny invisible spirit ant or, or multiply and kill the patient. And when I translated this for the cameraman, he said, what a bunch of bullshit. Yep. And I said, really? Because it sure sounds like a bacteria to me.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's uh, somebody... Uh, this may be bullshit. You can probably correct this, but I, I heard this a long time ago that, uh, that sage, burning sage, kills airborne uh, pathogens or something like that, which was like, yeah, of course, you're using it to eradicate the invisible world, uh, right. demons and spirits but all of
1: these herbs have essential oils and essential oils are antibacterial. So when you see those people with the the plague doctors from the Black Death in, in medieval Europe with these big beak masks, the beaks contain flowers. Flowers have essential oils, essential oils kill bacteria. Bacteria cause the Black Death. So this is another example of us in 21st century high tech society thinking, what a bunch of primitive nonsense.
0: What elitist shit. You know, we're just superiority all over the place. It's such inflation.
1: Yeah, well, we turn out not to have all the answers, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, Western spirituality. What do you mean when you say that?
1: Well, we're all raised in some religion, almost all of us. And then, does it speak to us? I mean, there's declining attendance in, in synagogues and churches and mosques all over this country. Every year, they seem to be closing churches in Rome, which is the epicenter of Catholicism, because people aren't going. Well, why aren't they going? Is it because they have Game Boys? Or is it because they have big screen TVs and want to watch sports? Or is it because this stuff doesn't speak to them in the way that it used to? I think it's some combination of all of those. But all of us who've had experience with these mind-altering substances have had spiritual experiences. And if you read uh, Fantastic Fungi, or yes. see the, the film, it's a fabulous documentary, great film. Uh maybe the people who take uh, psilocybin once say it was one of the greatest experiences, if not the greatest spiritual experience of their life. So this is where they came up with the term entheogen, releasing the God within. And this doesn't argue that 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 you know we should all be taking uh, trips on hallucinogens and not going to church. It, it's not that simple. But this argument that 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 Brian makes in his book is that maybe we need to combine them somehow. Uh, to give people that, that, that deep spiritual experience if just going to church and taking communion or making a bar mitzvah uh, is, is not speaking to their souls, literally.
0: Well, what I heard you say is that I need to go to church this Sunday under the influence of a bunch of mushrooms. Is that... I'm saying that that is...
1: should be an option that is on the menu. <laughs> of course. It should not be a requirement. <laughs> and, and when Brian says that, you know, <clears throat> if you stir a little ergot into the cup, uh, you drink the wine and you and you eat the biscuit and you definitely see the blood and, 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 and the body, uh, that's probably more likely to happen than just have such a deep belief that you get it that way. And, and that's not to say it should be one or the other. Some people have such deep belief uh, that they don't need any mind-altering substance. All I'm saying is there should be room for this. It, it, it shouldn't be one versus the other. How do we come up with a holistic whole? You know, how do we teach the golden rule? I think that uh, it's easier to do that through mind-altering substances than not. But you can use mind-altering substances for bad things as well, as we just touched on. So it it just needs to be on the buffet of life choices, whether it's for medicine or spirituality. The shamans would say, what's the difference between medicine and spirituality? That's why shamans can sometimes, sometimes, sometimes cure things that physicians and psychotherapists cannot. Because they're the religious leader and the doctor. At the same time, and the psychopomp, the person who, who who leads souls to the underworld, and the weatherman, and the bringer of luck, and the protector of of the game animals. So and, and this the is like you of know,
0: war. You know yeah. yeah
1: yeah I mean, this is like a spiritual Swiss Army knife. <laughs> it's
0: a multi-use tool. This is great. Multi-use tool, exactly. So, uh, so I had two two things there. One, I want to you started to hit on it, but it seems like. Oh, yeah, I had a story. I went to a funeral once of a colleague of mine who uh, completed suicide, and she was obviously very depressed, scared, overwhelmed, and ended her life. and i I went to the service with my wife, and the the it was a Christian not a, I can't remember what kind, you know Church of Christ or something and the the person didn't mention the priest or the pastor didn't mention suicide once but what he did say was don't ever look within go to the book and i think that's a fundamental difference where where many are taught to go look outside at this kind of intellectual literary like it's written down even though it says don't uh, worship false idols but something kind of feels like an idol there and what what happens i think in whether it's eastern medicine or it seems like indigenous medicine is it the imagination is not relegated to something that's epiphenomenal some kind of like the imagination as some consequence of a, a network of neurons but that the imagination is actually something that's fundamentally human so subjectivity is immense and so one's experience of uh, of their reality is kind of the the the, the mode or the the area or arena in which something is operated upon. So can we can we also now venture into, uh, we've talked about Western spirituality. I wonder if you could share some stories or ideas about what indigenous, in particular, of course, Northern Amazonian indigenous spirituality looks like, feels like, acts like.
2: Well,
1: people say that taking these types of substances allows them to be in touch with the cosmos, whether it's the spirit of ayahuasca, or the spirit of the river or the spirit of the trees. I was with a shaman from Suriname in Malibu of all places. And we're just taking a little hike. And he goes, Look at that stuff. That's good for your knees. And I said, No, it's not. And he says, Yeah, that's good for your knees. And I said, You've never seen that plant before in your life. That does not occur in Suriname. He says, I'm a shaman. The plants speak to me. Yes. Like Okay. So they're listening on a different level than we are. And they know things that we don't. Doesn't mean they know everything. No shame and I know can cure everything. But they can cure things sometimes that we can't. But getting back to the point of spirituality and looking within, looking up. Look, I'm a Jew. My ancestors wrote the Bible. Okay? It's a great book. Lots of great lessons. Yep. It speaks to a lot of people on a very deep level. People have been healed by reading the Bible and following the lessons and so on and so forth. But not everybody. So I don't understand if somebody is, is so depressed they're going to take their life, you would tell them, don't look inside. Okay? Mm-hmm. The Bible has all the answers. The Bible doesn't have all the answers. Neither does looking inside. Neither does ayahuasca. Neither does opium. I think we should have all of these things available in a way that benefits all of us as much as possible. Easy goal to lay out there. But, you know, uh, the uh, Bill Morrow once said, yeah, the Bible, uh, written 2,000 years ago by men who knew everything, but they didn't know where the... The sun went at night. Okay. Right. Yeah. So this is not to mock the Bible. This is to say that no shaman, no book, no religion, no psychotherapist, no ethnobotanist has all the answers. And 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 let's honor these other options. And so what worries me and the people at the Amazon conservation team is how this is all being destroyed very fast. I mean, we're burning potential new wonder medicines uh, for what? For firewood? Mm-hmm. Really? Is that a good use of it for for, for for making soy fields to sell cheap tofu to the Chinese? Is that a good use of it? I don't think so. So we wanna keep our options open. You know, I've been accused of saying Amazon has the answers to everything and can cure all illness. I never said that. I don't believe that, but I do believe there's other stuff out there. I'll give you an example. I was giving a talk to a group of shamans in the Northeast Amazon, and I showed a picture of the green monkey frog, you know, combo, mm-hmm. uh, which you buy on the internet. And uh, he said, oh, we, we we have that frog here. And I said, no, you don't. And, and he said, yeah, we do. I said, I've been working in 30 years. I've never seen that frog. He says, it's in the treetops. You're a botanist. You don't climb the trees. It's up there. And uh, what do you use it for? Well, we use it for divinatory and, and hunting medicine. Okay, they take it and they can see the future. Uh wild stuff, but this has been reported time and time again with Campbell from the first accounts by Peter Borman, the former editor of High Times, who I'm proud to call a friend. And uh, I said, well, I've been here 30 years. Why didn't you ever tell me that? He said, well, you've been here 30 years. You never asked me. (laughs) True story. And he said, and we have another frog that we use for the same purpose. Now, the way things work in nature is, you know, uh, Banisteropsis copy is a classic ayahuasca line, but you have other... Species closely related, which have the same compounds in it. So I found out what this other frog was. It wasn't even the same genus, and it didn't have the same hallucinogens in it. The point here being that people think, okay, we've got ayahuasca, we've got mescaline. Um, we don't. We you know we can burn down the rainforest. We got it all. We don't have it all. There's right. other stuff out there.
0: What are your thoughts about what's happening with DMT currently?
1: You know, I I don't wander into the legal field. I don't wander into the business field. How do you compensate people and stuff like that? You're talking about companies going public to the tune of $3 billion and you know, what should be legal, what shouldn't be legal. Uh, I'm a conservationist and my my, um, interest is making sure that the stuff's protected, the cultures are empowered to protect themselves, protect the forest, protect the frogs, whatever else patent issues, uh, dosage issues, uh, that that's, not, I'm not an expert on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm just a, a, a layman when it comes to a lot of these issues. Uh, and I don't make the mistake, which a lot of people that I know make the mistake. is like, well, if you're the world authority on uh, peyote, you can speak about iboga. Well, there's some stuff that relates, but you really don't have the same base of knowledge as you do on these things. I, I, I want to hurt back to the, the point I made earlier about Huxley and mescaline, and that uh, we need to think about our impact on the environment. Don't tell me about how you're one with Mother Nature and made love to the the goddess of the the river in the ninth dimension if you had to kill a bunch of endangered frogs to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay? Let's focus on what's renewable, sustainable. Let's think about giving back. It's not all about you. That's supposed to be one of the lessons of these things, right? It's all connected. We're all one. Be nice to Mother Nature. And then they're pulling
0: stuff up by the roots. You seem to masterfully move into these cultures. It it shows up in your book that there's a lot of mistrust and a lot lot of years, many, many years of trauma by people coming in and mining or invading or taking advantage of a lot of these folks. So how did you find, well, I guess the real question is, how did you create such meaningful relationships with folks that didn't trust you?
1: Relationships take time. And that's the human condition. People, look, I grew up watching Tarzan movies with Johnny Weissmaller. And he would go in the village and say, take me to your leader. And they would be buddies and dance around the fire. Doesn't work that way. Okay. (laughs) It takes time. But again, uh, you know, It's not just looking at indigenous people and think, okay, how do we get them to do our bidding or fork over the plants or whatever, whatever. It takes time. The shamans have working for 38 years and they're still showing me new plants. That's great. You know what the bad news is? It means they're still holding back. So this idea that you or me get dropped in a tribal village and our advisor says, all right, get all that information. I'm coming back in a year and I'm taking you back and you write every thesis. You can't do it. Okay, you can't do it. You cannot earn trust and friendship based on uh just meeting somebody and sticking around right. for a while look imagine you walk into a bar and somebody comes up and says how much do you have in your 401k you tell them to get lost right, right? or or nobody in a bar says let me tell you about my sexual fantasies i'm having these really <laughs> weird dreams you know it just
0: doesn't work that way tell them you're a and, psychotherapist and, and, and you'll get plenty
1: uh, yeah but then you get charged
0: right
1: That's right <laughs> uh so this idea that I, I just keep going back to the same places, and I go to new places. It's by the invitation of the indigenous peoples. There really is a jungle grapevine. So the tribe to the west wants to do mapping, and the tribe to the east wants to have a shamans apprentice clinic. Uh, that's really the way to earn trust, gain trust, and build on that trust. There's no formula where you walk in and give them an iPhone 10 and they'll tell you the cure for diabetes.
0: I, I, I'm reminded of that story you shared, and I, I, I'm I going to mess up the tribal name it starts with a Y, and you you went to meet the scary medicine man that ended up being a, a friend, it sounds like, um, where it was the scene where you were asking for plants and he wasn't giving up anything, but then you started to say, tell, tell, tell that, yes. were you?
1: That was the, the, the shaman of the lianas, who turned out to be Uh, a classic threshold guardian, you know, threshold guardians. I mean, it's like the the guardsman in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy killed the witch, she thought the guardsman would kill her and they became her allies on one knee saying, Hail Dorothy. Yep. And so here was a guy that everybody was scared to death of uh, that he had supposedly killed the shamans of the next village uh, in a dream. Uh, It's really quite scary. They, They made me come in their house and lock the door and stuff like that because his spirit was roaming the village. And when I got there, I, I, I met the guy. I mean, he was, he was one of the most frightening characters i ever met. And I knew I just had to work at, at, at building trust with him. So I spent a lot of time in the bush with him. He, uh, you know, wouldn't share anything. Everybody said, he's the man, he's the man. And then finally, uh, I, I remember something Schultes had told me. And, and he said, sometimes you point out medicinal plants from home, get some going. So I said, yeah, check out this plant over here. And he says, "Yeah." And I said, "We use that in the states for toothache." Well, this was BS because the plant doesn't occur in the U.S. And then another one. I said, "This one we use for earache." And he said, "Mm." "And then another one." I said, "We use this for aching knees." And he said, "No, everybody knows that's for skin infections." Okay, so that that just kind of broke the ice Mm -hmm. and 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 got him going. And, And we became friends after that. And He became a great teacher and a mentor. But you know it, 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 the the typical white American. You know you want to get there. You're in a hurry. You need the information. You think it's all transactional. You know if I just give this guy enough flashlights, uh, he'll he'll do whatever I tell him. Uh, that's not human nature.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it's not. <clears throat> but it makes me think about how uh, how important the relationship, the relational dynamic, really is. And it it brings up this question, and I I just had this thought about, I forget where I read it, but it was either in one of Ruck's books or Amon Hillman, they were talking about lying in Greek, in ancient Greece, was very different than we view it, and that occurs to Mm -hmm. me in these communities. Lying is not viewed in the way that we as Westerners view lying, I mean, it's more of a kind of social gatekeeper, you know, like, I'm just telling you what you need to know, and it's not lying, I'm just not... You're not ready. You're not initiated. You're not a part of the community.
1: You know, in New Orleans, you have a lot of great storytellers and and, and, and lying is part of that, right? Uh, just uh, exaggerating and, yeah. and, and telling a good story and maybe changing the punchline to make for a better story. So that um, uh, this idea that all lying is bad, you know, lying is a way we don't hurt people sometimes. Oh, I didn't see your email or I wrote you back. I don't you must have Got stuck in your spam filter so there, there's you know there's lies with the small l and lies with the big
0: yeah yeah
1: and and yeah. It's, it's like you know fiction uh, how can you teach people through fiction but some of the greatest lessons are through fiction or through movies or stuff like that so this idea of what's the truth and then you look at Rashomon, and you've got seven versions of the truth and everybody saw the same thing so that uh i, I just like this idea of, of of storytelling as a way of teaching Instead of saying it's got to be a scientific paper in technical mm-hmm. terms or you're not teaching anybody anything. That approach I, I, I reject.
0: What are your thoughts? It just occurs to me. What are your thoughts about what's happening in the U.S. with COVID?
1: Well, I, I put out a tweet the other day and said, can someone explain to me why Americans don't get polio anymore? You know, I mean, I'm from the polio generation. My mother was scared to death. And then fortunately, when I was a kid, the, the polio vaccine came out. And the, the idea that vaccines can never hurt you is, is too simplistic. But when you look at the record and you look at the politicization, it's ridiculous. This isn't about politics. it's about human health. And I, I have the impression a lot of people who are telling people not to get vaccinated are vaccinated. Now, I'm, I'm not a public health official or a politician, but I don't to see why human health is uh, a political issue. You know, uh, doctors on the battlefield, whether it was in the trenches in World War I or, or whether it was in the Middle East, you, you, you're not supposed to ask the patient, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Right. You know, you're supposed to be helping sick people. It's immaterial. So I, I regard this whole COVID thing sort of like I regard environmentalism, which was never a political issue. I mean, what people need to remember is environmentalism was invented by a Republican, Teddy Roosevelt, right. okay? The second greatest environmental president we ever had was another Republican, Richard Nixon, Danger Species Act, Marine Mammal Act. So why is this a Republican or a Democratic issue, whether you get vaccinated or don't get vaccinated? You know, and and so uh, COVID is teaching us a lesson, which is it's not nice to screw with mother nature. Yeah. You know whether you believe the, the escape from a lab story or whether you think it came from a bat or a pangolin, it's screwing with Mother Nature that causes this. is a conservation story first and foremost. Stop cutting down the rainforest. Stop jamming wildlife in fetid conditions and markets, because uh, bad stuff comes from it.
0: And that was my read on the monkey story that we talked about earlier. You know, you're you're you think you're 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 killing something out there, but it's something that's related to you in a deep way, and there's a It's a cautionary tale about um, you aren't aware of the kind of devastation and consequences that you're bringing about that will inevitably affect you personally, but you're imagining on some level it's something other. Back to that other thing we were talking about. I got to
1: say, it reminds me of that book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in in Kindergarten. Kindergarten, sure. Right? What's the lesson here? Don't make a mess. Yeah. Okay. Be nice. Yeah. Uh, All this talk about intellectual property rights, it's good manners. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, don't cheat people. Right. Be fair, share. And, 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 these are lessons that you can dress up in academic terms and make it seem complicated. I think it's pretty straightforward in a general, uh, in a general way, you know, don't destroy mother nature, because mother nature is going to be here long after we're gone.
0: Yeah. And she gets pissed. And she takes her revenge, which yes, COVID is one
1: pissed. example. Yeah.
0: You know, yes, she does. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I want to be able to let you talk about where you want to direct people and any other kind of slender threads that are hanging out that we need to tug on. Any stories or thoughts that occurred to you throughout our conversation?
1: Yeah, just two things. One is that I have a podcast out. It's called Plants of the Gods. We just launched the uh, second season, which focuses on cannabis. First issue is how cannabis is American as uh, apple pie.
0: Great episode. I listened to it twice. (laughs) Thank you. Second one
1: is Hemp, the Fiber that Binds America and points out that the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were written on hemp paper, Mm -hmm. uh, the rough draft. And the third one is called Jews, Jazz, and Joints, Marijuana and the Invention of Jazz in New Orleans. So the whole point of this podcast is to give uh, the perspective of an ethnobotanist and how living with people whose whole lives are based on plants, you know, food, fiber, uh, weapons. Uh, hallucinogens uh, has provided a different perspective and then used a very Schultean approach. Schulte's would always say that the problem with history is it's written by historians, some of whom can't tell a palm tree from a pine tree. Mm-hmm. And that is why it's often overlooked. For example, in the episode, The Ethnobotany of Warfare, I pointed out that the, 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 the uh, American Revolution was not fought over tea and the Boston Tea Party, it was fought over tall timber because at the time there were no composite materials so that the British needed the tallest, straightest trees in the world for their ship mass. He who controlled the biggest, tallest trees controlled the oceans. He who controlled the oceans controlled the world. Mm -hmm. And so the Americans realized that the British had cut down all their tall trees and that we had the white pines Mm -hmm. and that they were mining the colonies for those white pines. And the Americans realized correctly, if we took control of those resources, we could rule the world, and which we did. And we built the, the Navy, which basically, uh, you know, beat up, beat out the British Navy. And that these aspects of our culture and history, which are very much tied to plants, not just hallucinogens, were really kind of undertold in the history book about the fact that marijuana uh, came into this country through my hometown of New Orleans. And that's why jazz was cre- created there. <laughs> and, and that people don't realize this. I mean, I've read many history books on jazz, and they just don't get into this this part of the story. So that Plants of the Gods is talking about how we need to have a newfound appreciation for how these plants and fungi and frog think got us where we are and what's the future gonna be and why that uh, involves conservation. Because conservation is not about plundering Mother Nature for the next hallucinogen or cure for cancer, whatever, Mother Nature uh, needs to be stewarded well and that a better appreciation of the utilitarian aspects of Mother Nature should give a better appreciation for the ethical and spiritual aspects of conservation, which all of us who really care about these things and done a lot of these entheogens typically get, but not everybody does.
0: Well, and that brings up this last question that I really wanted to get to, which was what what's the deal, in your estimation, with the Western prohibition on substances? Because through your podcast, you continually say something like, all cultures, all throughout time, everywhere, try to alter their state of consciousness. So what's the yeah, and, what's the rub?
1: Andrew Weil, uh, who was actually a student of Schulte's that a lot of people don't realize, uh, said that uh, everybody everywhere likes to alter their consciousness somehow. And that kids, five-year-old kids will spin in a circle until right. they're dizzy and fall over. That's what they're doing. That's what that's all about. Yeah, wee Okay? When, when Muhammad outlawed alcohol, uh, the, the, the Muslims moved into hashish. Mm-hmm. Not all Muslims, but this is the thinking. And, and, and one of the ironies is when uh, Islam outlawed alcohol, the greatest physicians at the time were these Muslim physicians, and they invented the distillation process so they could distill wine down into something which is smaller and more efficacious, which is the invention of hard liquor. So that ironically, these people who prohibited the use of wine, who had a hand-inventing wine, uh, ended up creating distilled alcohol. These sort of unforeseen uh, things that come out of this stuff. But we all know that stuff like tobacco and alcohol, which we kind of think of, and not really a problem, yeah, it's dangerous and addictive, but you know, it's legal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, marijuana, i have got to be careful there. Like I point out in my marijuana episode, you know, if you give uh, four guys unlimited uh, alcohol, they'll get into a fight. If you give them unlimited marijuana, they'll start a band.
2: Okay, <laughs> that's true. If they're
1: if yeah. they're going down if they're going down the highway drinking, they're tearing down the interstate at 120 miles an hour. They're going down the interstate smoking. They're going 15 miles an hour.
0: I was in my first band mm-hmm. at 15 years old. <laughs> okay. Well you know this from the inside. I didn't like to so, fight.
1: <laughs> but how can we learn from the examples of alcohol and tobacco, which are highly addictive mm. and dangerous in excess, as we move towards <laughs> um, as we move towards as we move towards potential legalization. Um, because Colombia is now considering making coca legal.
0: Uh-huh. To me,
1: coca is one of the greatest drugs. I love coca, I love to chew coca, I, I love bambay, yes. coca powder. It's the world's greatest diet drug. You don't get tired. Um, it, it gives you a nice, like, feeling. It's not like, you know, taking amphetamines and stuff. But there's a downside to it, which is cocaine is very addictive. Yeah. So as we move forward, what can we learn from the example of alcohol and tobacco and uh, and marijuana, which is still evolving, right? Mm-hmm. People And now people are moving to make psilocybin illegal. Here we are in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. We just passed a law to make it legal. Uh, so good things are happening, but there, there's a downside that, that that I'm not an expert in. You're a psychotherapist. You know more about the dangers than I do. But again, it, 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 it's a double-edged sword. But we want to make this more available to people on an as-needed basis, but in the hands of people that know what they're doing and not think that, oh, you know, opium, it's a natural product. What, what, what could be the harm in that?
0: Well, uh, Mark, thank you so much for this incredible time reading your work. I I will continue listening to that podcast. For a guy that's interested in what I'm interested in, it is one of the perfect resources. Um, I will uh, look down below. You'll check all the links for those listening for uh, these podcasts and whatnot. And um, and I'll probably include a number of links to some of the papers you referenced too. Good. Um, Thank you. But thank you so much.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Let me let me just say one thing. You know, sure. here at the Amazon conservation team, this approach to biocultural conservation is all about protecting these plants, these fungi, these animals, these cultures, because there's lots they can teach us, not just in terms of hallucinogens and mind-altering stuff, but sustainable agriculture and trying to repair the climate, trying to steward. Mother, Mother Earth better. The, what, what, what many fail to realize is conservation is not about protecting endangered species. That's a small part of it. It's about protecting ourselves. It's about better medicine, industry, agriculture, spirituality. That's the holistic approach. And that is ultimately what, what will succeed or fail. Not a reductionist approach like, oh, this guy's got a magic frog, let's bring it back to the lab. I'm too bad about you know climate change right. and frog extinction and indigenous people losing their lives to shame and sake. it's all connected. I believe that.: Well, thank you.: Okay, thank you